so if you could turn in your Bibles, please, before we sing our uh, third hymn. Uh, it's First uh, Corinthians chapter 11. I want to read from verse um, 18 down to uh, verse 34. Give you time to find that portion of scripture. And we'll read. This is, remember, this is the word of God. Uh, it's authoritative. It's inerrant. It's infallible. As we often say, it's God's word to us. Let us pay heed to the reading and then shortly the proclamation of the word of God. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 18. First of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together one in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in eating each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who drinks, eats and drinks in an, in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we, if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged but when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the, less, and the rest I will set in order when I come. Well, the Lord's table what it isn't and what it is. This ordinance along with baptism was appointed by the Lord Jesus Christ as a mode of publicly professing our faith in the gospel that we love. If people were to ask you, why do you do this in the way that you do it? The answer is, we do it in the way we do it because Jesus Christ commanded us to do it. It's something that Jesus 
give to us, to help us to remember who he is and what he's done. Augustine defined the Lord's Supper and baptism as, quote, outward and visible signs of an inward and spiritual grace. In each case, the sign is a visible display that points to a reality different from and more significant than itself, end of quote. I'm going to go over that last bit for you again, because some of you take notes, and it's a very, very important sentence. So, in each case, the sign is a visible display pointing to a reality different from and more significant than itself. Now, how can I attempt to illustrate that for you? Well, it guess it's a bit like this. You may know that there's a sign on the M6 pointing towards Stafford. And you may know that sign. Maybe you have parked your car underneath that sign. Sign for Stafford. And as you go down the M6 and you pass that sign, you say to your passengers, there's the, there's the sign for Stafford. And you could be familiar with the sign without ever, you know, having visited uh, Stafford to which it points. There is a Stafford, you know, there's the sign. And, uh, well, apparently, apparently there are people there, but you, you don't really know that because you've never actually been to Stafford. Or uh, you can go into a bakery, and uh, in the bakers you can see all kinds of signs for the jam tarts, the apple tarts, the flans, the gattos, and you're able to point to all of those displays and signs and say, oh, look at that. And someone asks you, well, have you ever eaten any of those that the signs are referring to? And you say, no, I've never actually eaten it. So you see the potential of being familiar with the sign without having embraced the reality to which the sign points it is clear, hopefully, from those illustrations. And friends, that is equally so when we come to the matter of communion, the Lord's Supper. It is possible to participate in what is merely an outward display without actually knowing the inward reality to which this points. Therefore, it is very, very important for us as individuals, and indeed as a church, to pay the utmost, you know, important attention to these matters. What we are doing is not the result of, you know, men uh, a couple of millennia ago getting together and thinking up, uh, a ceremony that they can introduce to uh, the church. No, friends, this was given by divine appointment. 1 Corinthians 11, 23, 25, the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance 
off me. Now, uh, so I'm here with Mike and Claire. Uh, you have come out of a out of a background in which you were led to believe that there were really seven seven sacraments or seven ordinances, and you were catechized. If you were catechized in that tradition, then you were brought up believing that you must add to baptism and to communion or the Eucharist, penance, communion, marriage, ordination, and final unction. You've come through that. Obviously, to anyone listening on online or river, still within that tradition, well, I say this to you. You take the seven sacraments, and then you take your Bible, and look for all seven in the Bible. And you retain what you find, and you discard all that you do not find. Now, when you've completed the exercise, you will discover that as an ordinance or a sacrament, whatever term you want to use, that there are only two, only two given by the Lord Jesus Christ and underscored by Scripture. Not that the issue of marriage or some of these other matters are not addressed in the Bible. Of course they are. But they are not given to us in the way that baptism and the Lord's Supper is given. These other five emerged in the development of Christendom, uh, largely in the Middle Ages. And by the time you get to the Reformation, the confusion concerning sacraments was far more about the nature of the sacrament itself than it was about how many sacraments there actually were. Uh, and the issue was, what is happening in these? What is happening in the Lord's Supper? The issue was, what does baptism really mean? And who should be participating in it? And so with this sermon, the issue being addressed is not the number of sacraments, but what is involved. What is it? What is it not? And in the light of that, Who should be participating? Because as time went by, baptism and the Lord's Supper came to be regarded not simply as signs of grace, as Augustine pointed out. You know, outward and physical signs of an inward and spiritual grace. But as you go forward from Augustine, you know, you discover that the, uh, the signs of grace, now actually they're being thought of as containing grace and conveying grace. Now, do you understand the difference, friends? I'll take you back to uh, the sign of Stafford again or those cakes. You see, what is being said... It's not simply that the sign says Stafford. Suddenly, the sign is. 
Stafford. Have you got it? It's not that the sign is saying, you know, donut. You know, the donut, you know, is. You know, the sign is. The sign is the ghetto. So it's not that the bread and wine are representative of a sacrifice on a Roman hill, but it's now that the bread and wine are the actual body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The sign has become, the symbol has become the reality. And as a result of that, we are told that it conveys the very grace that the penitent requires. My friends, these notions are are firmly embedded in the minds of of many, many folks, uh, as we know. And when they are embedded in the mind, then it's very, very difficult to dislodge them. And some of you may say back to me, well, Billy, why would you even want to try and dislodge them? You know, certainly wouldn't it be easier to simply leave the issue as a matter of conscience and let people believe whatever they wanted to believe. But beloved, I can't, you know, leave it alone. You can't leave it alone because the conscience has to be informed by the word of God. And if your conscience is telling you something other than is taught in the Bible, then you need to submit your Thinking to the word of God. I can't leave it alone because, for example, you know, original sin. Original sin, if original sin is not removed as a result of the baptism of a child, then every grown-up child that sits and listens to me or John or others preach And here's us call for a response to the gospel. You know, you've got to come to Jesus Christ. You've got to be saved. You will process that call in your mind. Saying, you know, this is for people who haven't been where I've been. This is for people who haven't been through what I have been through. Because where I come from, and the background I come from, I know that I have already had that matter of original sin dealt with. Because the priest dealt with it when I was baptized. And as for communion, I've already dealt with the issue of communion when I took my first communion. And I'm able to deal with the results of my sin within my life as a result of all that is contained and conveyed to me in the celebration of the Mass. Now let me clarify. You know, my purpose here is not to trash any particular tradition. I have no interest in doing that, no desire to do that, other than to try and help you as the Lord's people to understand the Lord's Supper and what the Bible says about it. Beloved, that's my job. That's what I was called to do. And I certainly have a compelling burden to make sure that sensible people like yourselves will read the Bible for yourselves. 
uh, and that you would weigh up what I'm saying to you against what it says in the word of God. And you listen to what the Bible says. And let the Bible adjudicate over what you're being told. You know, that's why I've said to you as a congregation from the day and hour, arrive with yourselves. You know, don't take my word for it. You know, you go to your Bibles and you make sure that what you're hearing from here tallies with what's in there. And the Holy Spirit will do a work of grace in your heart so you read your Bible. And you consider what others are saying regarding any of these things. And if you find the ordinances of the church are made to teach other than what the Bible teaches, then you need to be very, very, very careful. Because what you have in the Bible is the truth thoroughly. What you have in the ordinances is the truth visibly. And the truth of God visibly conveyed by means of symbols will not, it will never contradict the truth of the Bible verbally. And so when you find teaching that grants to the visible elements, that which calls into question what you have verbally in the word of God, in the testimony of scripture, then you're going to have to make a decision. It comes down to that. You're going to have to make a choice. Are you going to embrace the cry of the Reformation, sola scriptura, scripture alone? That is the authority for the understanding of what the church teaches. You're going to surrender to sola scriptura as your only source. And the only authority? Or are you going to bring on board several other authorities and take your pick of which one you want to believe, uh, want to hold to? And so, I want you to understand that it's so easy to go wrong if you ignore what the Bible clearly teaches. You know, for example... You know, you've got young children. You've got young children here, okay? And you're going to be reading little books to them, aren't you? And uh, as we did, you know, you get the books out, and you'll point to, you point to little James and Ezra, little Miriam, you'll say, there's a horse, right? You put them in the car, and you go down the road, and as you pass the fields, it'll be horsey, horsey, horsey. Okay, everything's a horse. Remember with Jonah. Everything was a horse. Cows were a horse. You know, sheep were horses. Everything was a horse. And so what you had to do, well, you had to, to teach um, what, what a horse wasn't. You had to teach the negative. You know, a horse is not a cow. A horse is not a sheep. And so when you teach what it is, you also have to teach what it isn't. And so if I tell you that you meet Christ when you gather at the Lord's Supper, unless I tell you what that does not mean, 
Then you will bring the phraseology of all of your background, all of your life, which you have uh, been brought up with. And you, can, you have, you have a, a, a legitimate right to say, well, I'm sure that he really means this. Because that's what you've been brought up with. Unless, of course, I tell you, well, no, I don't mean that. And so, you see, I have to teach by the negative as well as by the, the positive. So, just let me, the page is stuck together here. Do you want to jump ahead, hey? Right, so here's a quote from the 1992 Roman Catholic Catechism, blessed by, obviously, JP2, for the instruction of uh, Roman Catholic people. Uh, Quote, The Eucharist, says the Catechism, the Eucharist is a source, is the the source and summit of the Christian life. In other words, there is in the Mass and the Eucharist you know, the Christian life embodied. It's crystallized, it's discovered, truly experienced in the Mass. For in the Eucharist, and this is a quote from section 1324, uh, in the Eucharist is contained the whole spiritual good of the Church. Section 1327, in the Eucharist is the sum and summary of our faith. So do you understand why there's little Bible in a Roman Catholic service? I stand to be corrected in that. Some of you are here from that tradition, and you can say, well, Billy, there is. You can talk to me afterwards. But, you know, I would say everything is centered upon the Mass, and there's a logic to it, because it's being... They're being true to the the, the doctrine that they profess. Namely, that the Mass is the sum and the substance of the Christian life. Here is contained, according to the Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church, here is contained the embodiment, the embodiment of all truth. This is the absolute apex and imperative experience that must be known by all of the faithful. And of course, in the course of that, the presence of Christ is there bodily. Now, some Roman Catholics say we don't believe that. I remember years ago, um, shortly after we became Christians, a guy by the name of Stevie Barry, provisional IRA guy, he became a professed faith. And in the whole debates that we were having, uh, he, he would say, but I don't believe that. I don't believe that, you know, the, the bread and the wine actually become the, the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. That's not what I believe. He says, I don't think a lot of Roman Catholics believe that. He says, so you're just arguing in the hot, hot air, like you're arguing over nothing. You know, that's not, that's not what we believe. Well, you know, how to reply, well, you're not a good... You know, Roman, Roman Catholicism teaches this. Uh, you see, other 
either it's true or it's not true, or else you're not a very good Roman Catholic. If you're denying what the very system you're in, you know, teaches. And this is from section 1376. Christ's presence is a substantial presence brought about through the conversion of the substance of the bread and wine. It is fitting and properly called transubstantiation. The body and blood of Christ are there. That's what is taught in the catechism. And so does it really matter, as Stevie was saying to us and arguing with us, it doesn't really matter. I'd say it does matter because of the dramatic consequences that emerge from the teaching. When you say that transubstantiation has taken place and that you have the real presence of the real Christ in these elements, then it is expressive of the fact that the Mass is a sacrifice in which the sacrifice of the cross is represented to God and applied to people. And again, oh no, said Stephen. That's not true. Well, here's the catechism. Section 1366. The Eucharist is thus a sacrifice because it represents, makes present, the sacrifice of the cross. The offering of Christ by the priest is the same as the offering made by Jesus on the cross. Now the question is, the question has to be, is that what the New Testament teaches? And for those who are still tempted to say, well, it doesn't matter, let me remind you that the reformers who came out of Roman Catholicism, they died fairy deaths at the stake. They were burnt to death, England, Scotland, throughout continental Europe because of this very issue. And the fact that the 21st century evangelical church thinks that it's a side issue, that you don't need to bother about it. You know, um, regardless of those objections, they do not overturn the record of history, nor the demand of the Bible. And furthermore, as a result of what is said to happen, the sacrifice is also made for the faithful who have died, who have died in Christ and are not yet purified. So by means of this sacrifice of the Mass, it enables them to enter into the light of Christ's presence quicker. Section 13 71. In other words, the action of the Mass speeds up exit from purgatory on the way to heaven. Is that true? Well, you have to read your Bible. Read the book of Hebrews. It says day after day the priest offers up a sacrifice that can never, ever take away sins. But when this man who had no sin came as the perfect sacrifice for sin, he made a once and for all atoning sacrifice for sins on Calvary. It's done. It's finished. Jesus said, over. It's complete. Totally finished. 
I need no other sacrifice. I need no other plea. Tis enough that Jesus died and he died for me. And he died on the cross. And on the basis of that once for all sacrifice on the cross, he has provided propitiation for the sins of all who believe. Now this is not two ways of looking at one thing. Do you understand this? These are two totally different gospels. Either one is right and the other is wrong. That's it. God alone is to be worshipped. But you know, in the doctrine of transubstantiation, there is the worship of the host. And that's why you see people genuflecting towards it during the lockdowns. People weren't going to worship. Uh, I saw a, a clip from uh, ITV News in Northern Ireland. The, the priest in uh, Anderson Town, I think it was, he said that uh, you know he w- he was going to make sure that the folks uh, were able to worship. And you saw a picture of him driving around, being driven around in the car with the host, held aloft. And as they drove down the Falls Road, people were bowing down. And they were worshipping that. And you see it blows out of the water. Exodus 1 and 2, doesn't it? Because if, if that's what you worship, Exodus 1 and 2 is wrong. Or Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2 is wrong. You worship no other God other than the one true and living God. Do not mean, in saying any of this, I don't mean to, to denigrate, obviously, the, the sincerity of those people. I mean to denigrate their love or their devotion or their commitment. You know, the earnestness, the earnest longing that is represented in the hearts of many of them, for whom that's the standard pattern of their life. And I don't, I do not wish to call into question, obviously, that there are those within the confines of that institution genuinely believe, you know, within the framework of it all, God is sovereign. God touches the hearts of people. Make them clear. Let them talk to them afterwards. Let them share their, their testimony with you and how the Lord led them. What I'm talking about here is the, the formal teaching of an entity that directly contradicts the teaching of the New Testament. Well, there's so much more that could be said, but friends, before we meet around the table, just let's remind ourselves of what it is. And I'll give you five words with a little explanation on each. If the Bible says communion is not transubstantiation or consubstantiation, which we didn't even get into, what is it? Well, the first word is the word instruction. In communion, we have an instruction in which we must obey the Lord Jesus Christ. 
When Paul writes of it in 1 Corinthians 11, he said, What I received from the Lord, I've also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus Christ, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, broke it, gave it to his friends, saying, This is my body that is broken for you. So it's an instruction in which we obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Since it is instituted by Christ, it's an obligation on Unlike baptism, which only happens once, our sharing in the Lord's Supper happens with continuity. We do do it regular twice a month. We uh, should note that it's not a saving ordinance. Okay, In other words, you you go to heaven. You can get to heaven without ever having sat at communion. You know, the thief on the cross never had communion. Uh, So it's not a saving ordinance. We don't do this uh, to... To get saved, it's a, it's a remembrance, and it's commanded, and that's why we do it. It's not a suggestion, you know, by the Lord Jesus Christ, I suggest that you do this when you meet together. No, it's a command. Secondly, it's a commemoration. We remember Christ, you know, just in the same way that the Passover was commemorative for the people of God in the Old Testament. Set before them were the visible signs, the symbols of God's work of redemption in the Passover lamb. Uh, And they were reminded again as they celebrated that Passover supper of the wonder of, you know, God's redemption to them as they had been brought out of Egypt and uh, that captivity. And so you honestly see what I'm saying? Uh, What was betrayed visibly in the Passover lamb made sense when the explanation was conferred verbally, you know, when a, a child in a family home said, you know, what's all this about, this Passover, the slaying of the lamb, etc. And the dad was able to say, you know, well, actually, it reminds us of the time we were in Egypt. We were in bondage and we cried out to God and God delivered us. And how he delivered us was he said that all the firstborn in Egypt were going to die. And that included the Israelites. But God provided a way for us uh, to escape and that was through the Passover lamb. That when the, uh, the blood of the lamb was shed and we you know, put it upon the, the lentil in the doorpost, uh, then the angel of death passed over. And so we, we were delivered from Egypt. We were set free. And that's what God's done for us. And we remember that. And that's why the reformers, you see, would never divorce the celebration of communion from the preaching of the word of God. And that, incidentally, is why in the context, you know, uh, such as this, the table, the table sits beneath the pulpit because the word presides over everything. Because Christ mediates his rule through his word. So commemoration, thirdly, proclamation. In the celebration of the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming the Lord's death. It takes us right back to Calvary. We proclaim that God redeemed his people by means of a substitute. And that, of course, is the message of the gospel. And if that is the message of the gospel, if you haven't already done so, will you not come and trust in the provision of the Lord Jesus Christ? The provision that God has made through his son. Will you not trust in Christ alone, through faith alone, uh, by grace alone? Will you not come and receive salvation from God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ? Will you not come to the Lord Jesus Christ this morning if you've never uh, done that? 
God has given us a visible picture of what he has done for us. And you see the the symbolism of it. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Helpless look to thee for grace. You know, uh, foul naked come to thee for dress. Helpless come to thee for rest. Foul I to the fountain fly. Savior, you gotta wash me. Or I'm a dead man. And the fourth word is participation. Participation in which we feed on Christ. Obviously not literally, but spiritually. Horatius Bonner, the Scottish theologian, writes this wonderful communion hymn based on the Lord's table. It's 438 in your uh, hymn books. And he writes... Now, don't be afraid to look at it. We're going to be singing it in a second. 438. I want to sing the first part. 438 in a moment. He writes here, O my Lord, I see thee face to face. What did he mean? What do you mean? Horatius, that you see the face of Jesus, that his face is in the bread. No, it's a picture. He's using a metaphor. Here would I touch the next part of verse 1. Here would I touch and handle things unseen. In other words, he's saying that when I take this bread and I take this cup, I'm not so focused on this as an entity. And that's what's happening this morning. We're not focusing on this so much as an entity because I think it wasn't Mike and Claire prepared it just before the service. It's clear, you know, where this has come from. You know, you picked up the bread and Tesco's probably. The same with the, the wine. But in taking, in the taking of this, By the eye of faith. I look into it and through it and beyond it. And there I am confronted again by the wonder of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for me. And I meet him in this encounter because he has pledged to meet me here. What's it say at the end of verse 1? Here I grasp with firmer hand the eternal grace and all my weariness Upon thee lean. Second verse. Here would I feed upon the bread of God. Here drink with thee the royal wine of heaven. And here would I lay aside each earthly load. And taste afresh. The calm of sin forgiven. Now Horatius was not saying that this is a representation of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's actually a reminder of the wonderful efficacy of Christ's once and for all sacrifice. You know, when Jesus said, I am the bread of life and he who eats of me will never hunger. What do you think he meant? He's using a metaphor. I am the door. It's a metaphor. I am the light. It's a metaphor. I am the bread. I am the living water. They are pictures, aren't they? Do you think... 
for one single solitary second that when the Lord Jesus Christ took the standard Passover meal and offered it to his disciples, that they thought for a nanosecond that what he was suggesting to them in the offering of the bread was anything other than bread. When he offered to them the wine from which they had already been drinking, that he was thinking of anything other than wine. And when he said, here's my physical body, which is broken for you, he wasn't giving them his physical body. He was giving them an emblem, a picture of his body. Now, the fact that men over time have changed that, corrupted it into a superstitious practice, which has held millions of people in a sorry grasp for centuries, preventing them from a discovery of the grace by the very mechanism through which, you know, they can come to Christ. This is a picture of it. It's pointed. It's pointless to Calvary. You can see that this is just one of the wiles of the devil, isn't it? To twist things, you know, to keep men and women from Calvary. To keep them from the very place where they'll find forgiveness of sins. And so the last word is anticipation. We do this till he come. You know, we, we look forward to the coming again of the Lord Jesus Christ. In power and glory. And he'll take us home. To be with himself and he'll make everything new and he'll usher in that kingdom of perfect righteousness. And so we look back, yes, and we also look forward. Now before we sing the first part of uh, our communion hymn and then participate in the elements, just one final thing to mention. We have to examine ourselves. Verses 27 through 31, whoever eats this bread... Or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in this in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. So let a man examine himself. Am I a Christian? Have I repented of my sin? Am I baptized? Have you been baptized by immersion? And we'll be looking at these over the next couple of weeks, but that's what the Bible teaches. Am I in fellowship with people in this church? Am I a member of this church? And so if you have repented of your sin, and you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're baptized and your membership of the church, obviously we extend the invitation for you to participate of the elements. If you're visiting with us from another evangelical church, that invitation extended to you also to stay in fellowship with us, break bread with us. If you are in any way unsure, then just let the elements pass before you and talk to myself or John afterwards to make sure you get things clarified.
But if you don't fall into those categories, please respect the decision of the church. Stay and observe, obviously, what's going on. Let it speak to you. Pray that God would use it to speak to you. But uh, that would be the criteria for anyone who would be participating of the elements, the Lord's table, within the fellowship.